Speaking personally, I have found our journey through Hebrews. Thank you. Ellie is my little helper. It's not wonderful. Thanks, Ellie. Um, I found our journey through Hebrews a challenge. There are certain bits of it I realize which are very familiar and oft quoted, and by and large, we find those bits in the last three or four chapters of this extraordinary letter or sermon. Those of us who've kicked around the kingdom for any length of time know about the great list of the faithful in chapter 11, the encouragement not to lose heart in chapter 12, to run the race with perseverance, and so on. I'm really looking forward to hearing what future Sunday speakers have to say about these passages. They are, of course, incredible. And we do well to study them and put them into practice. But they are a small part of the whole. I am a great collector of pithy sayings, aphorisms, and quotes. I copy things that have struck me as thoughtful, witty, profound, or insightful into a notebook. And periodically, I entertain myself with examples of other people's wisdom or humor. So let me share some of them. The first one. It is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. Abraham Lincoln said that. Referring to his brother Liam, I love this, Noel Gallagher of Oasis said, he's the angriest man you'll ever meet. He's like a man with a fork in a world of soup. (laughs) You feel his pain, don't you? Tact is the ability to tell someone to go to hell in such a way that they look forward to the trip. Anyone want to take a guess at who said that? Winston Churchill, who is without a doubt responsible for some of the rudest and most hilarious one-liners in history. And finally, from Mark Twain, the great American author, always tell the truth. That way, you don't have to remember what you said. To be honest, I don't know a great deal about any of these men. I've not read the Gettysburg Address given by Lincoln at one of the most pivotal moments of American history. I'm not a particular fan of Oasis, and I have never, I'm ashamed to admit, read the books for which Mark Twain is arguably best known, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and its sequel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I'm better on Churchill, but not much. The quotes I have collected are a drop in the bucket in relation to the achievements of their originators, caustic and incisive though they are. They don't represent the whole. And it would be impossible to appreciate the complete body of work of these men purely from these quotes. And so it is with Hebrews. The bits we're familiar with and perhaps feel we relate to best are part of something bigger. If we engage with the whole book, thereby giving context to the passages we're most familiar with, our understanding of what is actually being said and emphasized will grow. The familiar passages are indeed profound and enlightening in and of themselves, but they acquire greater meaning and relevance to us when they are in context. In the introduction to his book, Hebrews for Everyone, Tom Wright says this, the letter to the Hebrews is one of the most bracing and challenging writings in the New Testament. People often find it a bit difficult because it uses ideas that are strange to us. Thus far in our study of this wonderful book, it has been a fairly cerebral journey or a cerebral one, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're from. 
The writer has sought to unfold and explain who Jesus is and what Jesus has achieved. He has approached that task from various different angles, all rooted in the Jewish scriptures, so that these early Jewish Christians could understand that everything in the scriptures with which they were familiar clearly points to Jesus as the Messiah, God's anointed one, the one God has chosen as savior and liberator of his people. In the light of that, I've really appreciated the efforts of those who have stood up here and tackled testing material with clarity, rendering the perhaps impenetrable, comprehensible and more accessible than it was when we started out. Hebrews is indeed a challenge, but we're all up for a challenge, aren't we? So far in what we've looked at, the writer to the Hebrews has been concerned to make clear who Jesus is and just how much more Jesus has achieved than the law, God's initial covenant with his people, ever could. Last week, Toby was explaining about the tent of worship, how there was a large tent in which priests went about their duties, and then within that tent, a smaller one was set up, which represented the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctum, which could only be entered once a year by the high priest. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates chapter 9, verse 10, like this. It was essentially a temporary arrangement until a complete overhaul could be made. In this next section, we're going to look at the complete overhaul. I am unapologetically going to read a fairly long passage from the message. I've deliberately chosen the message because it excels at clarifying difficult passages of scripture. And if Tom Wright says that Hebrews is challenging, Hebrews is challenging. Some among us may throw our theological hands up in horror at my reading a paraphrase, albeit a brilliant one, rather than an accurate translation. Oh well. We're starting at chapter 9, verse 11, and reading all the way to verse 25 of chapter 10, but I am going to stop en route and comment as we go along. And then I want to concentrate on the last six verses. So, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created world and went straight into heaven's tent, the true holy place, once and for all. He also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goat and calf blood, instead using his own blood as the price to set us free, once and for all. If that animal blood and the other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, think how much more the blood of Christ cleans up our whole lives, inside and out. Through the Spirit, Christ offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from all those dead-end efforts to make ourselves respectable so that we can live all out for God. Like a will that takes effect when somebody dies, the new covenant was put into action at Jesus' death. His death marked the transition from the old plan to the new plan, cancelling the old obligations and accompanying sins and summoning the heirs to receive the internal inheritance that was promised them. He brought together God and his people in this new way. So let's pause there for a minute. 
It's important to bear in mind that the writer to the Hebrews was talking to first century Christians who had been brought up as faithful Jews. So that when he talks about animal blood and other purification rituals, cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, he's talking to people who have found faith in Christ from within the Jewish tradition. Of course, that is not the case for most of us. So it is easy to think, wrongly from my point of view, that a point is being labored here. We have to be able to understand how profoundly shocking it must have been for the hearers of this sermon to grasp what Jesus offered and why it was better than what had been on offer up to this point. Back to verse 18. Even the first plan required death to set it in motion. After Moses had read out all the terms of the plan of the law, God's will, play on words there in English, his desire and also his will and testament, he took the blood of sacrificed animals and in a solemn ritual sprinkled the document and the people who were its beneficiaries. And then he attested its validity with the words, this is the blood of the covenant commanded by God. He did the same thing with the place of worship and its furniture. Moses said to the people, this is the blood of the covenant God has established with you. Practically everything in a will hinges on death. That's why blood, the evidence of death, is used so much in our tradition. Again, this is the Jewish tradition Moses is talking about, especially regarding forgiveness of sins. That accounts for the prominence of blood and death in all these secondary practices that point to the reality of heaven. It also accounts for why, when the real thing takes place, these animal sacrifices aren't needed anymore, having served their purpose. For Christ didn't enter the earthly version of the holy place, i.e. the inner tent, which represented the holy of holies here on earth. He entered the place itself and offered himself to God as the sacrifice for our sins. He doesn't do this every year as the high priests did under the old plan with blood that was not their own. If that had been the case, he would have had to sacrifice himself repeatedly through the course of history. But instead, he sacrificed himself once and for all, summing up all the other sacrifices in this sacrifice of himself, the final solution of sin. Everyone has to die once, then face the consequences. Christ's death was also a one-time event, but it was a sacrifice that took care of sins forever. And so when he next appears, the outcome for those eager to greet him will be precisely salvation. So, more laboring the point? We get it, right? That Christ's death was a one-time event, a sacrifice that took care of sins forever. The problem is that although many of us get this in theory, I'm not convinced that the way we live our lives sometimes demonstrates that we have got it in practice. The first century Greek philosopher Epictetus said this, it is impossible for a man to learn what he thinks he already knows. I know this to be true because when Rachel was nine, her teacher tried to teach a classroom full of parents at a parents' evening how to subtract because our children were being taught in a different way 
from the way in which we were taught 150 years ago. <laughs> we could not get it. I still remember the looks of utter confusion on the faces of my peers as we sat there trying to learn something we already thought we knew or assumed we knew. We actually knew. Why we have to learn it again, I don't know. But anyway, that's not the point. My rather labored point is this. I sense that many of us who have accepted that Jesus died so that our sins would be taken away and utterly forgiven by our heavenly Father God, who understand, in inverted commas, that Jesus' sacrifice was a once-off and all-inclusive event, still live with shame for things that we have said or done or not said, or failed to do. We are, some of us, still consumed with guilt for how nasty, petty, selfish, judgmental, narrow-minded, arrogant, and downright unpleasant we can be. In John 13, Jesus memorably washes his disciples' feet. Inevitably, he has an altercation with Peter. I love Peter. He's so passionate and so flawed. My mother used to have a wonderful expression for when people talk drivel, as Peter so often appears to have done. He just opens his mouth and lets his belly rumble, <laughs> she'd say. And so he does here. There's no way you're going to wash my feet, Lord. And when Jesus says, well, in that case, Peter, you cannot be part of what I'm doing, Peter goes off on one. Well, wash the whole lot then, he says. Go on. So Jesus says, verse 10, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. The whole body is clean. Those of us who have accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in our place for our sins, those of us who know Jesus is Lord and Savior, have had a spiritual bath, Jesus says. We're clean. We're forgiven. Of course, we'll make a mess of things occasionally. We're flawed, just like Peter. We will lose our temper. We will wallow in self-pity, be unkind, behave in such a way that we despise ourselves and hold ourselves in contempt. So let's get our feet washed. 1 John 1, 1.9 tells us how to do that. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There is no need for guilt and shame. Our Heavenly Father does not require self-flagellation from us. He doesn't get any pleasure from watching us beat ourselves up over our weaknesses, our failings, our failures, and our fallenness. He just wants us to live in the fullness of what his son Jesus has done for us and to come and get our feet washed occasionally. Back to Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 1. The old plan was only a hint of the good things in the new plan. Since that old law plan wasn't complete in itself, it couldn't complete those who followed it. No matter how many sacrifices were offered year after year, they never added up to a complete solution. If they had, the worshippers would have gone merrily on their way, no longer dragged down by their sins. But instead of removing awareness of sin... When those animal sacrifices were repeated over and over again, they actually heightened awareness and guilt. 
The plain fact is that bull and goat's blood can't get rid of sin. That is what is meant by this prophecy put in the mouth of Christ. You don't want sacrifices and offerings year after year. You've prepared a body for me for a sacrifice. It's not fragrance and smoke from the altar that whet your appetite. So I said, I'm here to do it your way, O God, the way it's described in your book. Jesus is quoting directly from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8 here. So here's your homework. Go and read Psalm 40. It's a foreshadowing of what we've just been saying about getting your feet washed. It's a beautiful psalm. When he said you don't want sacrifices and offerings, he was referring to practices according to the old plan. When he added, I'm here to do it your way, he set aside the first in order to enact the new plan, God's way, by which we were made fit for God by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. Every priest goes to work at the altar each day, offering the same old sacrifice year in, year out, and never makes a dent in the sin problem. As a priest, Christ made a single sacrifice for sins, and that was it. Then he sat down right beside God and waited for his enemies to cave in. It's a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. By that single offering, he did everything that needed to be done for everyone who takes part in the purifying process. The Holy Spirit confirms this. This new plan I'm making with Israel isn't going to be written on paper. It isn't going to be chiseled on stone. This time, I'm writing out the plan in them, carving it into the lining of their hearts. He concludes, I'll forever wipe the slate clean of their sins. Once sins are taken care of for good, there's no longer any need to offer sacrifices for them. Here, the writer to the Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. What he's doing is saying to his readers or those listening to his sermon, look, don't just take my word for it. If you need confirmation, it's all there in the Jewish scriptures. Look at the Psalms. Look at the book of Jeremiah. Look at Exodus. Look at Isaiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And for the majority of us listening to this who have not emerged from a Jewish tradition, it is still very important that we too understand that Jesus is everywhere spoken of and pointed to throughout the Old Testament. Why is it important? Because elsewhere in Scripture, it is made clear to us that we have an enemy, Satan, whose chief aim is to separate us from God to destroy our faith and then to destroy us. And by us, I mean all humankind, not only Christian believers. He is desperate to keep everyone from a full understanding of who Jesus is. Surely this is beyond question when we see what's going around us in the world, on our doorstep in France, further away in Syria and Iraq, in the Lebanon, in Mali, in Kenya, in Eastern Europe, as thousands upon thousands seek to escape oppression, danger, deprivation, and possible death in their own lands. In Burundi, currently, they fear genocide on the scale of the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. Many of you will still have been very young when that happened. It was appalling. It was evil run 
rampant and evil continues to run rampant in many different forms in many different places what in god's name and i use that expression advisedly what in god's name are we to do let's read the last few verses of today's passage in the message this last section is headed don't throw it all away and if you remember nothing else from this morning please remember that Chapter 10, verse 19. So, friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice, acting as our priest before God. The curtain into God's presence is his body. So let's do it, full of belief, confident that we're presentable inside and out. Let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his word. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out, not avoiding worshipping together as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. Once again, in these first three verses, the writer is telling us this incredible, mind-blowing, game-changing truth, that because Jesus shed his blood for us and went ahead of us into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, we can do what previously nobody would have presumed or dared to do, to go straight into God's presence ourselves. Last weekend, before the meeting, I was chatting to Katie Miller, and her youngest, Rufus, was hanging about us. He then suddenly saw Finn, his father, walk into the building and he legged it up the corridor and chucked himself at Finn's knees and embraced them. Give him three or four years and the same move will constitute a serious rugby tackle and Finn will be down. But for now, he's relatively safe. Rufus had no doubt that his dad would be delighted to see him. We need to have no doubt that our heavenly father will always be delighted to see us, even if we go to him desperately in need of having our feet washed. Jesus has gone first, and we can follow without fear. Have any of you seen that wonderful footage on YouTube of the two young guys back in the 60s who bought a lion cub from the pet department in Harrods? They called it Christian, and it lived with them in their flat until it became quite obvious that it no longer could. So they eventually released him into the wild, And some years after they did that, they went back to see if they could find him. And sure enough, this fully grown lion is spotted in the distance and comes slowly towards them. And then he gathers pace until he is running at these two guys, Rufus-like, and puts his massive paws on the shoulders of one of the men and wrestles him and plays with him and licks his face and what have you. It's amazing, but the most amazing thing to me was that Christian, the lion, brought his mate with him, a completely wild lioness. And because Christian has gone ahead and fully indicated by his behavior that contrary to expectations, this is a safe place and these two men are not dangerous and not to be feared, this completely wild lioness goes up to them and allows them to touch her and to pet her. She trusted them because Christian trusted them. We can approach our Heavenly Father with confidence because Jesus has gone ahead of us. So verse 22 says, let's do it. 
The NRV translates verse 23 like this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. I love that word, unswervingly. It contains all the connotations of knowing where you're headed and why. Knowing that God, who has called us to this and asked us to walk this path, will come good on his promises, will forgive us, will save us, will redeem us, and will reward us with an eternity in his presence, being loved by him and cherished by him because we accepted Jesus, his son, the most precious gift he could think to give us. So what does looking, uh, sorry, what does walking this path look like? Well, it probably won't be a straight path, at least by no means all the time. Sometimes it will be straight, flat, lined with wild flowers, and the whole thing will bring unalloyed pleasure. At other times, it may well be very up and down, rocky, seemingly impassable in places, narrow in others, precipitous in yet others, slippery, heavy going but it's still the same path. The great thing, though, is that God's plan, as verses 24 and 25 clearly indicate, is that we needn't do any of it alone. In fact, by implication, it's preferable that we don't. One of our jobs as Christians is to encourage one another. Going back to what in God's name we should do, here are some suggestions. Firstly, realize that we don't have to be sorted to encourage others and to give to others. Sometimes knowing that somebody else is struggling along the path with us is enough to spur us on. We've got company. It's raining hard and you forgot the flask of hot tea, but they didn't. They forgot dry socks, but you've got a spare pair. We're just not alone. Of course, we can be religious, or do I mean sanctimonious about it, and say that with Jesus we're never alone. And that is, of course, true. But very often, in my experience, God's provision for us comes through other people. Secondly, pray. I want to draw your attention particularly to a talk which John Wright, the director of Vineyard UK, gave in the wake of the turmoil in Paris nine days ago, which you can access online. In fact, Jesse has posted it on the Kingdom Vineyard Facebook page. It provides some very helpful pointers as to how we as Christians can respond to such horror and particularly of note among the many people we can pray for were two categories. Praying for the leaders of nations and our own leaders, whether or not we voted for them or rate them, because their job is beyond any doubt tougher than ours. The veteran American comedian George Burns said this, Too bad that all the people who know how to run the country are busy driving taxi cabs or cutting hair. Let us insert whatever it is we do for a living or are currently doing with our lives and apply that to ourselves. And the other notable group to pray for are our enemies, the perpetrators of these monstrous crimes we see happening all over our world. As John Wright points out, it goes against the grain so much to pray for them. But the Bible instructs us to do so, so we'd better get on with it. It's fine to pray that people who commit these atrocities be caught and brought to justice. But let's also pray that their hearts will be softened and that they will be convicted by a loving God who wants the best for them quite as much as he wants it for us. Sorry, this is a lengthy aside, I know, but a pertinent one at this time, I think. 
So let's pray for one another. Time without number. Friends in this church and elsewhere have taken the time to text, email, or write to me with a word they feel God has given them for me to encourage me, to build me up, and to get me moving again when I've ground to a halt, as we will all do on occasion. Let's make a point of doing that for one another. Thirdly, learn to apologize. If we've made a mistake, spoken unnecessarily harshly or insensitively, or been downright nasty, let's say sorry and mean it. No, I'm sorry if I hurt you. No, I'm sorry, but you really were a bit of a... Let's be grown up and take responsibility for our own mistakes and shortcomings. I've had to apologize to at least four people I can think of this past week, and you know it hasn't killed me. Fourthly, learn to forgive. That's the toughest one yet. Have you noticed how very easy, how easy it is to tell other people that they just need to forgive so-and-so? And how very difficult it is actually to do it ourselves. We self-justify, we cuddle our hurt to our chests like a puppy. But hurt grows quickly into resentments, resentment and bitterness and disappointment. So it's best to put it down before it does. In the message, Eugene Peterson talks about being inventive in encouraging love and helping out. Perhaps realizing we don't have to have our ducks in a row before we can encourage others. Perhaps praying, apologizing, and forgiving aren't terribly inventive, but they work, and they'll do well enough for starters. And finally, the writer to the Hebrews tells his readers and listeners not to avoid worshiping together, as some are in the habit of doing, but to continue to spur one another on in order to be ready for Jesus' return. In the NIV, the New International Version, where the message says worshipping, the NIV says meeting together. Let me quote Tom Wright again. So then, we are to come to worship God, not just in private, though private worship and prayer are enormously important, but in public as well. The danger of people thinking that they could be Christians all by themselves was, it seems, present in the early church just as today. And verse 25 warns against it. This may well not be due to people not realizing what a corporate thing Christianity was and is, but because when there was a threat of persecution, as as will become clear later in chapter 10, it's much easier to escape notice if you avoid meeting together with other worshippers, much safer just not to turn up. The writer of the Hebrews goes on to say that even fear of persecution is a rubbish reason not to get together. He puts it a bit more eloquently than that. Here in the kingdom vineyard, we do not need to fear persecution. I confess, I am not a fan of the Lone Ranger school of Christian thinking. I think we need one another in the church for mutual encouragement, for support, and for irritation which leads to growth. Unsurprisingly, we don't get that if we go it alone. And we also don't get it if our fellowship consists of hanging out with our friends and nobody else all the time. Speaking personally, if I neglect meeting together as I sometimes yearn to do, if I'm honest, I slowly begin to get spiritually flabby and unattractively self-indulgent, crabby and critical. I praise God for his beautiful, flawed, loving, annoying, encouraging, supportive, challenging church.
She keeps me honest. Let's stand. Shall we pray together? Father God, we are so grateful to you. And Lord, we want what we want is a life of obedience to you, following you, learning more of who you are, allowing you to change us from the inside out more and more. And Father, we just know how tempting it is to go for the easy option. We all do it. But we come before you now, Lord, and say, we want to serve you and to be who you would have us be. Thank you, Father, that you care enough to take that on. Amen.